the research very consistently shows kids as young as four, five, and six years old, they already know the predominant stereotypes about different social groups. Uh, they don't know the word stereotype uh, at that age, but they'll say, oh, well, black people are like this and white people are like that. Out in the world, uh, there's cultural inertia. These biases are kind of built into our social systems, our media, and so on. And if we don't actively work against them, their default state is going to be to persist and, and to be perpetuated. Welcome back to the DEI Podcast. I'm Max Gaston. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. William Cox, an experimental cognitive scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, whose research has found that stereotypes and bias are like a habit that can be broken. Dr. Cox and his colleagues have developed what they call the Bias Habit Breaking Intervention, an experimentally tested intervention that has been shown to produce long-term reduction of bias in people's attitudes and in their behaviors. We'll talk about the different ways that stereotypes and prejudice can affect our interactions and then discuss the strategies for reducing bias in Dr. Cox's habit-breaking intervention toolkit. We'll also discuss what it takes to break a habit and some common strategies people try that often result in making bias worse. Here is Dr. William Cox. Dr. William Cox, welcome to the DEI podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be here. The work that you do is prolific to me because, you know, being someone myself who works in diversity, equity and inclusion, there are often times when you're asked to, for instance, lead trainings and workshops and give presentations about things like bias and microaggressions and cultural competence. And so often when you look at how those kinds of trainings are done the way that they're led by other practitioners, you know, it's always the same sort of things. It's PowerPoint presentations with a bunch of definitions about the different types of bias. And, you know, it's an approach which, and I know that you talk about this a lot, it's an approach that doesn't actually move the needle forward in terms of changing attitudes, changing behaviors. At worst, those trainings can even leave people walking away even more resistant than they were coming in to topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion. So you champion a scientifically grounded, evidence-based approach to bias training. How did you arrive at the idea of taking an evidence-based approach to bias training in the first place? And why is an evidence-based approach more effective than other approaches for reducing bias? So to tackle the first part of it... Uh... Uh, so I got into this, uh, I was very interested in studying bias and prejudice and all those sorts of things uh, because of just my own life background. So I grew up in a multiracial family and it was also a military family. So I grew up all over the world and just had lots of experiences seeing how people see the world differently and sometimes how that can come into conflict when people make assumptions about other people and, and so on. And so all that made me very interested in these, these issues related to culture and bias and, and so on. Uh, and then uh, when I was in college, I took a social psychology course and learned that, wow, people can actually study this sort of thing scientifically. Um, and that just fascinated me, uh, this kind of combination of scientific research with uh, 
things that are important uh, socially out in the world, social justice kinds of topics. Um, and so that that uh, really got me started on this, this path. And I went on to get my PhD looking at that kind of stuff. Um, and in terms of uh, why take a evidence-based approach to, to bias training specifically, if we're going to put time and money into programs that that we hope are going to make differences in people's lives, uh, make a difference in our institutional cultures, we want to know that they're they're actually going to work, um, and they need to uh, have some some reason for us to kind of put those kinds of resources into these uh, efforts. And as as you already mentioned, what the research actually shows is that there are a lot of these kind of trainings or presentations that aren't really built around any scientific model of, well, how do we move the, actually move the needle, to, to use your terminology? Um, how do we actually get people to change their behavior and, and work on these issues? Uh, a lot of the trainings, uh, like you described, they, they, they have a lot of definitions and terms. They, they're full of factual information, but that's not really what pushes people to start uh, trying to make a difference in the world around them. That's just kind of information that they get. And, and as you said, sometimes it actually makes people more defensive. They start learning about all the ways they could be doing things wrong, and that maybe makes them put up more walls or or uh, be less engaged with DEI kinds of efforts because they're afraid of, of getting shamed or, or guilted about things. Yeah, the idea that this is something that can make people more defensive is really fascinating to me because I don't know that we ever really look at it that way. But it's certainly true in my experience, at least, even with the words that we use, a term like microaggressions, for instance, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, why does it have to be aggressive? I wasn't being aggressive. Yeah. And so when you're working with terminology and with a certain style of uh, of training that is running counter to what people actually believe in themselves that they're doing and might even make them defensive, it can be a real challenge to get them to listen in the first place to what you're trying to say and just create that barrier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the term microaggression is a, a perfect example of that. It's it's kind of bad on two fronts. On the one front, just as you said, you know, for someone who's maybe unintentionally uh, engaged in a microaggression, for them, it wasn't aggressive. But then also for the person experiencing it, the person who's kind of the target of that microaggression, very often it doesn't feel micro. It feels pretty, pretty big. Uh, and so the the term in some ways can can be seen to do a disservice on on both angles. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, I mean, that's an excellent point as well. One of the evidence based approaches that you found to be most effective is the what you call the bias habit breaking intervention. Until I found your research, I never I'd never heard or considered the idea that bias could be understood as a habit, you know, something that is uh, developed over time, but it can be broken. You know, they say, you know, you know, develop good habits, you know, uh, what is it? A hard habit is hard. A good habit is hard to break or, you know, help me with that narrative. But, um, but it's an interesting way of looking at it. And I think it's really useful. And so, you know, it makes sense. And all of a sudden, it's hard to stop seeing bias that way once I understand it as a habit. Can you talk a little bit about this idea that bias is a habit and where that idea comes from? Yeah, uh, so so that idea uh, comes from my, my my former PhD advisor, actually uh, Trish Devine. Uh, many years ago, back in the '80s, um, she did some of the foundational work that led to kind of modern day ideas like. Uh, 
definitely the fact that we can approach bias as being like a habit. Uh, but if you've ever heard the term implicit bias or unconscious bias, um, all that stems from some of her early research. Um, and she came up with this notion that, that if we think about how we learn these biases in the first place, that we're exposed to things in culture that get repeated over time, stereotypes, uh, portrayals of, of racial groups or, or different identity groups in very stereotypical ways, that gets just kind of rehearsed and reinforced and practiced into our brains, just like other forms of cognitive or behavioral habits. Uh, that repetition leads to stereotyping and bias being the kind of automatic default response, our default way of perceiving members of different groups. Um, and that if we, we think of it as a habit in that way, then the question becomes, how do we break that habit? What are the steps? Uh, and and uh, through the, the huge literature on how to kind of change these cognitive patterns, uh, there's kind of a core, core model that we then put into this habit-breaking training. And there are four components to it. The first is you have to have motivation. Uh, to to want to make a difference related to the habit. Nothing happens if if you don't personally decide, hey, this is something I want to change, something I want to work on within myself. Um, and then you need awareness of how the habit plays out. Part of the definition of habits is we're not always aware of how they influence us. And in the case of bias, that's especially true. Sometimes we don't notice the ways that stereotypes and biases can color our perceptions of other people. But that's something you can become aware of. And that's a big part of what our training focuses on, um, getting people to be able to tune in to how bias is likely to influence them. Then you need some kind of concrete tools, ways you can kind of retrain your, your cognitive processes, retrain your behavior, things you can do that will effectively work against the habit. Um, and then the final component of, of this kind of habit-breaking model is effort. You have to put in effort over time. We've learned these biases over many, many years of them being reinforced in our minds uh, across our lifetime. And it takes effort over time uh, working with these tools and this awareness that our, our training helps give people. Uh, and then they put in that effort over time to, to retrain their cognitive patterns and, and break the bias habit. Mm. I think the effort over time piece of it is one that uh, I want to dig into. I often find, especially with organizations, and you're talking to their leadership, that when they ask you to do something, for instance, lead a bias training to eliminate the bias in their community, you know, they want you to do it in an hour. <laughs> you know, they have this idea that, okay, here we are, major entity, corporation, and we've got all of these issues and problems with belonging and trust and uh, bias and competence. And we really don't have a lot of bandwidth to educate people on that. So there you go, 45 to 60 minutes, solve the problem for us. And then when you're done, they can have somewhat of a plausible deniability and say, well, we tried. We tried to solve the problem. We gave you 45 minutes to talk to us and it didn't work. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk yeah, you a little can, bit about that idea? Just that the idea that in order to break a bias habit, you have to have effort over time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what you describe is something I, I encounter a lot as well. Um, this kind of like checkbox approach where they're like, okay, now we've done our diversity thing, we can check that off the list. And then if something happens, it's like, oh, well, you know, look, we tried. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, sometimes, so, so our training, it's, it's, uh, three to four hours long, de depending on, on the circumstances. Uh, and sometimes I get companies who say kind of exactly what you just said. They're like, oh, can, can we do it in like, like an hour? And I'm like, all right, well, it's only three hours and you want it in one hour. So you want two thirds less of the content. Um, <laughs> and, and also, uh, uh, when people come to to us looking for our training, you know, we have this huge 15 now, now that it's 2023, 16 years of research behind it. And we've shown that it makes, uh, has a positive impact on individual levels uh, of bias, on organizational climate, on, on hiring decisions, all, all sorts of things that it, it really positively helps individuals and organizations. And so they come to us wanting it and then they're like, oh, we want to have it in, you know, 45 minutes or an hour. And I'm like, okay. So you want something that's going to completely change your organizational culture, completely change the minds of all your employees, get them all working on overcoming bias. Um, and you want it to have effects that last for years and years, but you want to squeeze it in over a lunch break. Like, how does that, how does what you want to get out of it kind of match uh, the, the ask there? And uh, if we're talking about things where, where people need to kind of shift around a lot of stuff that's been uh, rehearsed into their minds, these habits that have been built and reinforced over years and years and years, I don't think it's uh, unreasonable to, to say that it's going to take some of that time, that effort over time. And you have to give yourself the mental space to really be able to examine those things and work on them. Mm. So I want to talk about the bias reduction toolkit that you recommend for people to help retrain their reactions. But before that, I would like to discuss the different ways that bias and stereotypes can actually impact ourselves and impact other people. Uh, and one of the ways that I know you've talked about is that stereotypes can often guide our expectations about other people. Um, one example is the common gender stereotype that men are better that men are better at math and science than women are. Can you talk a little bit about how stereotypes create and guide our expectations about others and can even undermine the underlying intention not to be biased in our interactions? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so very often, um, as you say, those those expectations uh, are set up by by the stereotypes and biases in the first place, and and our brains really like it when the world outside matches the expectations that our, our brains have. Um, it's one of the main functions of our 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 neural systems is to accurately or uh, efficiently predict the outside world. And so when we have these expectations related to race or or gender, uh, we tend to like it when people match those expectations. So if you have an expectation like, like the one you brought up, the expectation that men are going to be good at math and science and women maybe aren't going to be as good, uh, when you have, uh, let's say there's a, a woman who happens to not be very, very good at, at math or science, that matches the expectation um, that your, your brain will kind of tacitly have related to gender and, and math performance. Um, and that, that leads to your brain actually kind of liking when that expectation is upheld. Our brains really like it when they can predict the world well. Um, and so it actually brings in your brain's reward system and makes it rewarding when uh, s someone matches your expectations. Um, and this leads us to, to pay more attention to and to weigh in memory more heavily uh, examples of people who happen to match stereotypes. And so it leads us to kind of start believing and relying on the stereotypes more and more because of how we focus that attention more on examples that confirm our expectations or confirm the stereotypes. 
This is so interesting to me because effectively what it means is that those stereotypes lead us to believe things like uh, like a man is going to be better for a role of a commercial airplane pilot or a police chief over no, a no. woman. Um, and so, you know, the thing that you were saying about uh, the the positive feeling associated with um, that expectation being met um, and the maybe negative outcome that happens when you feel that expectation has not been met. If you see a woman who's going to be piloting your airplane um, and you get a bad feeling because that violates that brain's expectation. Uh, that's so interesting. And Will, why are we like this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, so our brains really want to be efficient. Um, and, and stereotypes uh, are, are nothing if not efficient. They make it seem like members of a whole social group. We know everything about them already. We know uh, whether they're going to be good pilots or not and, and, and all of these other sorts of things. It, it takes the complexity of human experience. Real humans are actually very complex and, and it simplifies them. And our brains like that simplicity and that efficiency. Um, and so, so that's my that's my answer to the question: Why are why are we like this? Um, uh, but but also, we don't have to be like this. Is kind of the the good news that I, I try to emphasize. Uh, this is something that we can work on. We can start to recognize it when our within ourselves, learn to catch ourselves when these biases are likely to happen, and then we can put that effort over time that we've been talking about into not being like it as much. Mm. The other problem that you talk about with these types of expectations that our brains have is that it can create prescriptive norms and self-fulfilling prophecies that might often, you know, again, for example, push women or people of color away from high level roles um, into more submissive roles. You know, you say that when people violate prescriptive norms, they're often penalized for it. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So so when we have these expectations about people. Um, what we think they're going to be like, um, it, it becomes these prescriptive norms you mentioned. Uh, we think that people should be uh, the way that we're expecting them to be. And so uh, if, if we're going to gender norms, like, like you were just talking about, the idea that women, quote, according to these stereotypes and these prescriptive norms, should be very warm and loving and nurturing and focus more on home and family life than, than being assertive in the workforce. Or the idea that men uh, should be very physically strong and not prone to, to being very emotional or sensitive. Um, and then when someone violates those norms, so let's say there's a man who uh, isn't very physically strong and maybe is more emotional, more sensitive, uh, you know, people will penalize a, a guy like that often. They'll maybe call him a wuss or a sissy or not a real man. Those are the kinds of uh, norm enforcement things that that we often talk about. Uh, there are penalties for not living up to this stereotyped ideal of, of what a man is, quote, supposed to be. Mm. You know, in our episode on the imposter phenomenon, we talked to Dr. Kevin Coakley, who uh, is a researcher at the University of Michigan, uh, who studies the um, the imposter phenomenon and feelings of being an imposter in students of color uh, who are in higher education. And one of the things that Kevin talked about was the idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy in the context of um, the education setting for young black boys. You know, the idea that when a, a teacher sees you and has a certain expectation that you're going to perform poorly, you will fall to meet that standard of expectation in the way that you actually perform. Um, and so this problem that you're 
that you're identifying, um, I think, really speaks to that issue of how people are penalized um, by the expectations that we have for them and almost compelled to meet failure because we expect that of them. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, with that example, think about it not just with one school year, but if these young Black men are facing this year after year when subsequent teachers have the same kinds of expectations about them and how that can compound across the the entire time they're in school, it it's very worrisome. One of the things that I think uh, is really interesting that I found in your research was a point that we've talked about before about confirmation bias. So you say that across many studies, researchers have estimated the imbalance created by confirmation bias to a mathematical ratio of one to three, and that once a stereotype is a habit of mind, even if you experience it that it's wrong 75% of the time, confirmation bias weighs that 25% so much more heavily that you give that bias more credit than the countervailing proof. Talk about that idea because it makes sense, but it just, it, it blows my mind that confirmation bias can be so deeply ingrained in you that you can see three people walking down the street who break your stereotype and just one is enough to bring you right back into that way of thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's what we were able to show in a, a couple of our, our research studies, that three to one ratio, that 75 to 25 percent. Basically, in that research study, uh, the way you're, you're kind of describing, you're walking down the street and you're seeing different people and some of them confirm stereotypes and some of them disconfirm stereotypes. We're kind of trying to model that in the laboratory, just using a computer program where people are making these, these social inferences that could be influenced by stereotypes. Um, and in the, the, the one condition, we set it up where most of the time people disconfirm stereotypes. So that was the 75% and 25% you're talking about. 75% of the time, the, the people that... Uh, participants encountered disconfirmed the stereotype and only 25% of the time did they confirm the stereotype. And in those people, we showed no change over time in how much they used the stereotype or believed the stereotype. Um, and yeah, that was uh, definitely uh, pretty uh, shocking. <laughs> um, it wasn't fully what we expected. We knew there would be some confirmation bias, but we didn't think it would be that extreme. We actually expected in that condition for people to disconfirm the stereotypes a little bit uh, more, that we thought that disconfirmatory evidence would have more of an effect. Um, but okay. <laughs> I think that it speaks to how deeply rooted the messages are in our minds, you know, how deeply ingrained they are that we receive maybe from an early age. And, you know, just referencing back again to the conversation with Kevin Cochleon imposter, the imposter phenomenon, you know, he explains that. Uh, where this starts is the messages that people receive when they're children about themselves and about their performance. And I just can't help but think that on a broader level, what we are told, what we see, the implicit messages that we receive, as well as the explicit ones, have a deeper way of creeping into the back of our psyches than we even realize. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, the research very consistently shows kids as young as four, five, and six years old, they already know the predominant stereotypes about different social groups. Uh, they don't know the word stereotype uh, at that age, but they'll say, oh, well, Black people are like this and white people are like that. Um, I... From one of the, these trainings that I give, an audience member shared this example, this this story with me about his uh, about six year old kid. Uh, so so he's a white man, uh, white family. 
Um, and uh, basically what they kind of figured out was, you know, they, they lived in a white community. His kid didn't really have a lot of exposure to people of color. Um, and one of the only times that his kid ever saw people of color uh, was on TV during the TV show Cops. Um, and so uh, this came to uh, came to light one day when they were at a doctor's appointment. They were in the waiting room, and then there was a a, a black couple that came and sat in the waiting room. And the kid very proudly kind of sat up and pointed at at the black folks and started singing the cops theme song. Wow! <laughs> and of course, these these parents they're they're mortified that this is what their their kid is doing, and you know stopped him. That's not something they taught him. But when representations that that the kid is absorbing from culture, that's that's what he's seeing. That what that's what ended up being what's programmed into his mind and and what he's what he's thinking. Um, and so so yes, uh, there's a ton of research that we absorb all this stuff at such young ages. If you just look at like commercials for kids toys and the kind of gendered messages in those uh even uh you can see how extremely stereotypically people get portrayed mm. i did a study abroad in law school um in london and i walked into a class one day and i had a pair of shorts on and just uh, you know a shirt from the gym and the professor looked at me and said you look like you're about to go play basketball <laughs> I just thought to myself, of course, black man in a pair of shorts, you know, the immediate reference is basketball, right? Yep. <laughs> um, but what I think is so maybe disempowering about this idea, you know, this one to three ratio is that for people who maybe don't want to be social activists or out in the field really trying to change people's minds, but they choose to live their lives in a certain way and hope that by that example, they can break someone's stereotype. It effectively tells them that maybe that doesn't work. And, you know, so one example that I shared with you when we were talking before this interview was uh, when I was living in Chicago, I was at a party once and there was this white guy that I was talking to. And it was one of those really fast paced discussions where you're completely just, you know, the synergy is right there. And you're almost agreeing and saying yes before you even hear and process what the question was. And in that exchange, the next thing that that guy said to me was, well, you know, you're not black. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah sure, exactly. And then I took a beat and I was like, wait, what? And he looked at me and he goes, well, no one on paper would ever look at you and assume that you were black. And what he was what what he was identifying or pointing at was this notion, okay, good on paper, you know, lawyer, well-traveled, XYZ, all of these things that are seemingly um, significant, impressive, whatever you might say could never be associated to a black man. And in that moment, my perspective was, so there's nothing that I can do, nothing that I can do in my lived, my life can never be an example for you of something that can break your stereotypes about what black men are. You know, it's sort of like you become a, a lower level version of a Barack Obama or an Oprah Winfrey. You're not uh, an example that breaks the stereotype about black people, you're the exception to the norm that I set aside. And so I maintain what I believe, but there are outliers and I can acknowledge the fact that there are some outliers. Yeah. And, uh, uh again, I'm sorry that happened to you. Uh, and it's extra insulting because it kind of, uh, is like the person's trying to take away part of your identity. Like you can't be black because 
you don't match my preconceived notions of what black people have to be in order to really be black. Like it's just so uh, it's so disgusting. <laughs> I want to address one of one other thing you said about the kind of three to one ratio. I mean, what what you're describing is kind of a an example of of some of the outgrowth of some of that, right? Like you're someone who's an, uh, who's violating the stereotype, and then people are kind of discounting it. Uh, but I, I don't want the message to be like, well, it's hopeless. <laughs> um, like, look, the deck's so stacked against us, there, there's nothing we can do. Because even just talking about this and helping people understand, you know, hey, you might feel like these stereotypes are kind of true, but your brain does this stuff that kind of weighs things in that direction. Becoming aware of that and being more in tune with that can help work against it. Um, and you can do things to make sure you're getting that kind of exposure so that uh, three to one ratio, you can work against it by having an increased dosage effect, expose yourself to more media that's actually from members of the Black community in, in this example. Get more of those examples into your brain to, to work against those uh, ratios and, and those negative stereotypes. Hmm. Well, let's look into that a little bit more, right? So you developed this bias reduction toolkit that shows strategies to help people uh, actually be um, actually train themselves to break some of the habits of mind that um, that are you know causing the harms that we're talking about. And so, again, these are evidence based uh, approaches that you've identified that can actually have an impact on changing people's not just their attitudes, but also their actual behavior over long periods of time. So what are some of the bias reduction strategies in the toolkit that you've found to actually be effective in in breaking the bias habit? Oh, uh, <laughs> how many hours do you have? Um, <laughs> uh, no, uh, uh, so so there's a lot of these uh, tools that, that we've... Uh, uh, adapted from the research literature. Um, they aren't all our own original ideas necessarily. Sometimes they're things that other researchers have spent decades uh, kind of studying the, the particular technique in isolation. And what we did is, is worked it into this kind of bigger model, this, this training we have. Um, so I don't want to take uh, all the credit. Um, but uh, so, so one of the tools for kind of retraining automatic reactions is, is to do perspective taking. Um, something a lot of people uh, maybe talk about uh, in other kinds of contexts, but but it's it's a really powerful uh, tool. A lot of times, some of what uh, ends up happening is when someone's of a different group membership than us, different race, different sexual orientation, whatever group status we might be talking about, uh, we kind of don't connect at, as deeply on an emotional or empathetic kind of kind of level. Uh, and, and perspective taking is one way to, to, to work against that. So uh, imagining what it's like to be in another person's situation. And I actually have a, a personal example of this that I can share uh, if you're interested. So I was I was at a, this is pre-pandemic, uh, I was at a university sharing, giving our, our training. Um, and uh, we were in this this big uh, uh, kind of conference room that was set up with rows of chairs. Um, and so, so we go through our, our whole three-hour training. Um, and at the end of it, people are staying after and having additional discussion and, and stuff. And there's a woman in the back of the room uh, who raises her hand. And, and she's in a wheelchair. Um, and uh, what she draws our attention to is that the way the people had set up the room 
um, was such that there was no way for someone in a wheelchair to come and be fully included. So in her wheelchair, she had to be behind the last row of people sitting kind of all by herself out in, in nowhere land. Um, and, and she drew our attention to that. Um, she was like, did you see that the way they set up this room doesn't even meet minimum accommodations for like the ADA requirements? Um, and honestly, I, I hadn't noticed that, you know, I was focused on presenting or or, or whatever else. Um, but this afforded me a really natural opportunity to do perspective taking. So when I went back to my hotel that that evening, I thought back on that and I was like, gosh, what was that like for her? She came to the session, a session that is about diversity and inclusion, and she was physically excluded from participating. She couldn't chit chat with someone that she was sitting next to because she couldn't sit next to anyone. She had to sit behind everyone all by herself. And, and I just really thought through, imagined what that experience might be like. And, and it, it gave me kind of a strong emotional reaction. Like it doesn't feel good to be excluded. Um, and, and it, it, that, that kind of emotional experience, it, it left a mark on me, uh, so much so that from that day forward, I'm unable to walk into a room without kind of having my antenna go up and I look around and I see, okay, if someone comes in a wheelchair, if someone comes in some kind of a walking assistive device, where are they being fully included? Is this room set up properly uh, so that they can be a part of the experience? Not just when I'm the presenter, although I definitely do it when I'm the presenter, but, but even when I'm just an audience member. And I, I think it would shock a lot of people to know how often people just, you know, kind of set up chairs and even though the law says we're supposed to have, you know, aisles of a certain width for people with a wheelchair and supposed to have an area where someone with a wheelchair can roll up and sit next to their, their colleagues, uh, it, it doesn't happen. Um, and if you would ask me before this experience, if you'd ask me to kind of list off what are the ADA requirements, like how are rooms supposed to be set up to be accommodating? I mean, I mean, I'm a so-called expert in this area. I could have told you, I, I had that knowledge in my head. But it was only after this experience and then doing this perspective taking and getting that kind of emotional connection to it that it really drove my behavior going forward. It changed how I, I do things to make sure that rooms are complying with ADA requirements. So doing that kind of perspective taking and, and forging that kind of emotional, empathetic connection to different experiences can be a powerful way to drive your behavior going forward this idea of once you see it you can't unsee it i think is so true and perspective taking can really help with that the other thing i think is really interesting about this is it calls to mind the fact that there there's a cross section of um, identities and experiences in the world and any one of those groups any one of those individuals who falls into one of those groups can perpetuate bias, right? I think we often think that bias belongs to a certain segment of the population, you know, the cis straight white man, for instance. Um, and we don't acknowledge the fact that when we're talking about brain waves and brain patterns and how that impacts behavior over time, ownership of bias and the, uh, the perpetuation of bias is something that we all do. And so even if, you know, me, a black man who experiences discrimination for different reasons, I can still look at somebody who is disabled and not see what the struggles are that they experience. And that as well is something that is um, significant for me. Perspective taken from that perspective can help me reduce my bias and the harm in the world that I have, for instance, to people who are within the disabled community. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we're all socialized and we all grow up in this culture that has these representations built into the fabric 
of of our social environments. Uh, the, the stereotypes and and biases are there, and we all learn them regardless of whatever our own identities uh, might be. And so, so yes, uh, cross other boundaries like you described, and also even just within um, our own social groups. So, so your story earlier uh, about the the guy who was like, "Oh, you're not really black." Uh, made me think of of something that happens within the gay community a lot. So so I'm a gay man, and there's there's things like that that gay guys say to each other all the time. If someone's not very fashionable, that's one of the stereotypes of a gay man, or not into like classic movies or something. They don't have that kind of cultural knowledge that that some gay people prize as kind of part of part of our culture. They'll say things like, "Oh, I'm taking away your gay card. You're not really gay because you 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 know, don't dress well." And that sort of thing. Same sort of thing kind of the if you're not meeting the stereotype, somehow your identity is not as valid. Um and so even even within uh our own social groups, we can have these biases that that we need to work on. <laughs> Mm. And I think that perspective taking is also good at addressing one of the other problems that we haven't talked about, um, but it's something that I know is in your research, the idea of untested assumptions um, and how the brain will assume that it knows things about people that are actually untested and unproven. Uh, and I thought about this because one of the examples that um, I've heard you give is this notion of gaydar. You know, I can tell who's gay just by looking at their mannerisms or listening to their voice um, without actually knowing that person or having had them share that information with me. Uh, can you say a little bit about untested assumptions? Sure. Yeah. And actually, the the gaydar kind of thing is is what first uh, led me, inspired me to think about this untested assumptions notion. Um, so so imagine uh, just using the the gay fashion kind of example we assume or many people assume that based on how a man's dressed you can tell if he's gay or straight uh, and and I tell people to think about think about how that often happens. You're just kind of walking down the street, or maybe you're sitting outside at a restaurant. And you see someone walk by, and you're like, "Oh, that guy's gay because of whatever he's wearing." Well, what happens next? Do you run up to him and ask? Do you say, "Hey, I was just looking at you, and I had this assumption that you were gay. Am I right about that? Am I wrong about that?" Probably not. That's probably not what you do. You're just gonna be like, "Oh, look at that gay guy," and then. Uh, go about your date, but you actually never learn whether your assumption was right or wrong. It's just an assumption and it's completely untested. And the way our brains store evidence, when we make assumptions or inferences about uh, other things or other people, uh, our brains still store that in our memory systems. And essentially what, what we showed in some of these studies sh stores it in a way that's pretty similar to, to actual objective evidence. And so our own assumptions end up strengthening the biases, strengthening the stereotypes, even when they remain untested. So if we're going throughout the world and stuff's popping to mind, someone sees you in your shorts and they're like, oh, he's playing basketball. Someone, you know, sees me wearing something fashionable, like, oh, he's gay. Uh, they don't actually learn whether they're right or wrong, but in their minds, they're right. Um, and if later they're thinking back on it, it's going to be like, oh, yeah, that gay guy I saw earlier. Or, oh, yeah, that basketball player I saw earlier. They treat the assumption like it's a fact, even when they don't have evidence one way or the other. Um, and so that's one of the ways that these stereotypes end up being self-perpetuating. These habits get maintained uh, if we don't do something to start disrupting them and working against that in our own minds. It's really crazy how the memory can transform assumption into fact just, just by way of the stereotypes that reinforce that assumption. One of the other approaches in your bias uh, reduction toolkit is stereotype replacement. And so what is stereotype replacement and how is that something that can be helpful to helping us retrain our brains and the way that we the way that we think? 
Yeah, so uh, in some ways, stereotype replacement is kind of the most straightforward. Uh, it's basically, if you don't want to think in stereotypical ways, practice thinking a different way. Replace the stereotype with, with something else. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I have this mnemonic device that I came up with to kind of help people with this, uh, and that's detect, reflect, reject. Um, I was very proud of myself when I thought of that. I was like, oh, yes, three words that rhyme and they all correspond to theoretically meaningful steps. So so, so basically, when you have a stereotypical thought pop to mind, like let's say someone's walking around and they they see a black gentleman in, in shorts and they're like, oh, I bet he's playing basketball or I bet he's on the basketball team. Well, first, you want to detect that you've made that kind of an assumption. Um, and that's a huge part of uh, what, what our, our training helps people with is tuning into these things, recognizing, oh, wait, I'm just making an assumption about this person. I don't know what he's up to. Uh, so first, you want to detect that. Then you want to reflect on it. Um, so part of uh, the three to one ratio we talked about earlier and the untested assumptions thing is that that's what happens if we just let our brain do its business without trying to change it. Um, so if you just kind of let it pass, your brain's going to store that information like it's a fact. But if you take the time to bring in your more deliberative cognitive processing, to think it through, to reflect on it, that helps work against those kind of default processes. So you want to reflect on like, gosh, why did I, I assume that? Uh, I assume that because of cultural representations of Black men in basketball that I've absorbed my whole life that made it an automatic assumption. Uh, you might think of what are some of the negative effects of that stereotype uh, and, and so on, kind of really thinking it through. And then uh, reject it. So if thinking of other people in stereotypical ways is not what you want to do, uh, reject it and, and replace it with something else. So say, you know what, maybe he's going to go bowling um could be uh something that they do in that circumstance or uh you know not all black people play basketball remind yourself of that maybe reinforce that idea reinforce a different cognitive pattern that's going to contradict whatever the initial stereotypic thought was mm. what's really interesting about this to me is these are evidence-based methods that you're talking about perspective taking stereotype replacement you know detect reflect reject but my natural assumption when I think of, okay, some kind of an intervention method is that it's going to be something that's relatively heavy duty. It's going to require a lot of effort on my part. But the things that you're talking about are seemingly easy to do at any moment. Yeah, um, and that's 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 by design. <laughs> um, they, they need to be things that people are capable of doing if... Uh, if they were too labor intensive, people wouldn't wouldn't do them. These are are things that we've worked really hard on, kind of filtering down to to kind of core things that uh, that people can apply themselves. Mm. So along the lines of reflect, reject, one of the other reduction strategies that you recommend is considering situational explanations rather than making uh, an assumption based on a generalized um, explanation. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so when someone else engages in a behavior, uh, let's say there's a student who, who fails a test, we immediately kind of come up with reasons why the student failed the test. We explain other people's behavior in the moment in our in our heads. So if someone fails a test, most often we're going to think something along the lines of, oh, well, he's not very smart because that's why people fail tests, right? They're, they're not smart. Those are, are personal explanations, things internal to the student as a person. Um, that's a general tendency people have. We tend to jump to those personal explanations. Um, 
And that's something that gets uh, exacerbated even more if we're talking about a member of a stereotyped group. So that's a black or a brown student who fails the test. The same stereotypes we were talking about earlier, where we expect black and brown students maybe not to be as smart, maybe not to be as motivated. That's going to pull us to even more strongly jump to that kind of conclusion. What the considering situational explanations is, is, is just trying to step back and say, what else could be going on here? So um, what's a situational reason that this student could have failed the test? Uh, well, you know, maybe he had a roommate who was playing music till late in the night and uh, couldn't get enough sleep. And so he was groggy when he was taking the test. And, and that's that's what was going on. With him. It wasn't because he's not smart. It's just the circumstances that he was in wasn't wasn't good for him or for him. Taking the time to consider how aspects of the situation might drive someone's behavior. It's part of that reflect step of the detect, reflect, reject, right? You're reflecting on what else could be going on here. Um, and it's not like we're making excuses for the student. So if this was a, a student of mine, it's not that I'd say, oh, well, maybe something else is going on. So I guess I just won't count this test. It's not that, but it's recognizing, you know, I really don't know what's going on with him. Um, maybe it's that he was lazy or didn't study. Maybe it was something else. Uh, but but taking the time to just consider those situational explanations slows us down from jumping to those snap conclusions, make, makes those kind of uh, gut reactions uh, less common. It also makes me wonder about who gets the benefit of the doubt for us. If you've got a class of a dozen students with different genders, different identities, and let's say every single person fails the test or, you know, gets performs poorly on the test, who among those students will you say, you know what, something must have happened, they probably didn't get a good night's sleep, and then who will you look at and say, well, they're not that bright anyway? Um, because I think that that, if you are able to organize it, can be revealing in the assumptions that we make about people from particular identity groups. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I mean, the situation you you described uh, actually happened to my, so my good colleague and friend, Trish Devine, uh, who, who was my PhD advisor, we developed uh, this whole training approach together. And one time she was giving this training with, with a group of, of teachers. Um, and one of the teachers had a realization that was exactly what you just described. When we were, when, when Trish was talking about this situational explanations for behavior, this teacher realized that for years, if she had a white student who didn't turn in an assignment or maybe came late to class, she would go and have a chat with them, kind of, you know, sit on the chair and, and be like, hey, what's going on? Did you miss your bus? What's happening? Essentially giving them the uh, benefit of the doubt, as you said. And she recognized she didn't do that for her, her black and brown students. Um, and for her, she, she was she was very angry with herself in the moment, very guilty about that, realizing this way that bias had been playing out for her. Again, unintentionally. Um, she didn't want to be advantaging some students over others, but the way these things can seep into our minds and our, our behaviors uh, can, can be insidious. One of the other things that you talk about is broadening your input. What do you mean by that? So this can cover a, a wide variety of things. Uh, this can be the media you consume. So so going and, and watching movies and TV shows that are from creators of color, if we're talking about a racial context or LGBT folks, someone, someone who's different from you, to basically get input into your mind that is different from the kind of typical well-trodden narrow stereotypes and and biases um so so the media that's one way to do that through through media you consume also just interactions with other people um so a lot of times people assume that if someone's of a different skin color or 
different sexual orientation or a different culture that they're not going to have anything in common. So they don't even try to kind of make connections, make friends and, and so on. And what that ends up doing is you have friends with people who are similar to you and you're not friends with people who are different from you as much. Um, and, and that just helps continue reinforcing these stereotypes and habits. But, but if you can kind of get down those barriers in your mind and make more meaningful connections with people who are different from you, um, that also helps work against uh, these stereotypes and biases. Hmm. Yeah, I was leading a workshop where I was actually talking about this idea that you raised, broadening your input. And one of the things that I talked about was media and how, for instance, if you live in a place where there aren't that many people who um, are different from you in terms of identity, how media consumption can help you. And the point that was raised that I thought was incredibly poignant is the idea that media can be a double-edged sword where it can perpetuate stereotypes. Um, but that is seemingly different from media that's actually created by people who look like the individuals they're talking about. Yeah, and and with that, I, I would also add, um, it's also, at least from our perspective, with this kind of training approach that we do, uh, one piece of a, of a bigger puzzle. So you're also using that detect, reflect, reject when you're watching the media. Because just like we were talking about earlier, I mean, Black creators can have very stereotypical Black characters in their, their shows as well. But if, if you're pairing that kind of input with uh, your own kind of uh, retraining of your reactions and recognizing oh, that's a really stereotypical portrayal. That's not really how I want to think about members of that group, but I can I can still uh, uh, watch this show, watch this movie uh, and, and learn something from it, then then that's good. The the whole package, I, I think, is, is important because uh, the stereotype perpetuation can come from anywhere. It can come from people outside of a given social group or people within it. And uh, with the uh, kind of what media do consume and consuming media thoughtfully kind of message, uh, sometimes when people uh, hear about the broaden your input and like, oh, you should watch media that's it's from different creators, what they think uh, we're trying to say is, oh, you know, you should go and watch Roots and then Malcolm X and then all kind of really heavy sorts of things that are very specifically about kind of education. Uh, but, but one thing I, I always like to add on is that th those things are, are great if that's if that's where you are and that's what you're up for watching. But it can also be things that are that are just fun. Um, so having this kind of input doesn't have to just be, oh, well, I'm, I'm doing work on, on racism right now. It can be, hey, this is part of how I experience media created by members of this community that that's that's fun and it, it enriches me and interests me uh have you ever seen the tv show grand crew no um it it has nicole byer um who's a really funny comedian i don't know if you know who that is but it's a it's a group of uh black friends um and it's similar to any other kind of sitcom that you see out there except it's an all-black cast um, and sometimes they deal with issues that are very specifically about race. Uh, but in general, it's just fun, silly, comedic kinds of situations. And part of the point of the kind of broaden your input tool is you're getting stuff in your brain that uh, pushes back against the stereotypes. Just having emotional connections with characters, even if they're going around doing silly sitcom sorts of things, that actually does positive work for you in terms of working against the biases, putting other stuff in your head besides these these uh, bias habits that we're trying to break. Mm. Yeah. And I think that a lot of what we see nowadays, especially in uh, Hollywood, in terms of black directors, for instance, being able to have a space where they can uh, showcase stories about 
black people that don't have to necessarily tie back to um, any of the typical tropes that we see, you know, a story about slavery, a story about discrimination, a story about growing up in an underprivileged community, but they can be about things like a serial killer, you know, or, you know, a psychological thriller, and they can focus and center black lives in a way that you don't typically see them being centered. I think that breaking the mold in that way is really, really useful. Uh, Well, something else that you do that I think is really great um, is you talk about what doesn't work. Um, And so, you know, something that I think is really helpful is looking at um, those things that you identify as um, what people might initially go to to try to address their biases that actually can maybe make the bias worse or you think it's going to work and it doesn't actually do anything in terms of mitigating the amount of bias that you have. So can you say a little bit about um, those types of strategies and why they don't work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so one of them uh, is just trying to ignore group statuses. So this is the the cliche kind of thing that some people are like, "Oh, I just don't see race," uh, and and that's their way of trying to. I, I think what they're trying to say when they uh, adopt that kind of approach is, you know, I don't want to treat people unfairly based on race. I want to treat everyone, you know, nicely. <laughs> Uh, but what ends up happening, uh, research shows that that when people just try to ignore race or or other group statuses, uh, what happens is uh, they actually show more bias rather than less bias. Because part of this process, uh, in, in our terminology, the process of breaking these bias habits, is you need to recognize how race or how other group statuses are going to affect you. You have to look at it. You have to put it on the table and acknowledge it. And so if you're just ignoring it, you're not questioning as much, could race be influencing my judgment in this situation? How might stereotypes affect the way I treat this person? Uh, and we need to question those things so that we can uh, kind of bring in some of the effective tools to to try to make sure that we're treating people fairly. What I think is so important about this in the context of where where I am, for instance, a law school, um, is the idea that we have in the law, uh, lady justice is blind, um, this notion of color blindness or gender blindness or sexual identity blindness or whatever it is, um, we want to believe that we can ignore these things. Um, but the truth is, and you know, this is based on research, like you said, we can't. So in addition to ignoring group statuses, there's that problem of believing in personal objectivity. Can you talk yeah, about yeah. why that's actually um, not something that we're really able to do to the degree that people believe we can? Ullman and Cohen, who are some of the researchers who have talked a lot about how Uh, objectivity or having too strong a belief in your personal objectivity isn't a good way to to reduce bias. I really like the title of one of their papers because I think it highlights this concept well. The title of one of their papers was, uh, I think it, therefore it's true. And part of the idea here is if you're you're trying to use objectivity as your your approach to reducing bias, you can see how that's intuitive. Like uh, objectivity seems like the opposite of being biased, right? But what ends up happening is people start to think of themselves as, well, I'm an objective person. And if you're an objective person, well, the thoughts that just pop into your head, those are going to be objective thoughts, right? Um, and so, but but what we know is that the thoughts that pop into your head very often are going to reflect stereotypes or biases. And so people who are just kind of bluntly saying, oh, I'm just going to be objective, 
thoughts pop into their mind and they tend to go with them. They don't question them as much. Um, they, and then that results in them showing more bias rather than less bias. And, and in law specifically, so a uh, caveat that I am not a lawyer. So if I get some of this wrong, I apologize. But I mean, there are already ideas like prejudicial evidence that we say, once this is brought to light, it's going to color people's judgment of a defendant. Um, and so the idea that something uh, like gender or race that is in most cases readily apparent uh, when you're seeing someone on the stand, the idea that that wouldn't have kinds of biasing effects, I, I think just isn't well supported. <laughs> mm. The other approach that people often take that you identify as something that's that doesn't work uh, is stereotype suppression. What is stereotype suppression? So this is just... Uh, well, if you don't want to think about stereotypes, just don't think about stereotypes. Just push them out of your mind. Um, and thought suppression in general is something that, that clinical psychologists and therapists and cognitive psychologists for many, many years have shown it's not a good way to approach changing your cognitive patterns. Um, this is like telling a depressed person, like someone who has a cognitive form of depression where they're having negative thoughts like, oh, I'm fat, I'm stupid, I'm ugly, everyone hates me. Just telling them, well, don't think about those things. <laughs> like, just push those thoughts out of your mind. That doesn't really work. Um, and in the case of stereotypes and biases, uh, it leads to what we call the stereotype rebound effect. People can kind of push out of their minds like, oh, okay, I'm not thinking about stereotypes for a moment or two. But after they stop, those stereotypes come to mind even more strongly than before. Um, and, and what the research has shown is that down the road, they show more bias rather than less bias. Just bluntly trying to push stereotypes out of your mind, not a good way to go. You're much better served by acknowledging them, saying, oh, a stereotype popped to mind. How might that influence my behavior? Let's make sure it doesn't influence my final behavior. Mm. So we know some things that don't work. Stereotype suppression, ignoring group statuses, believing in personal objectivity. We also know some of the items in your toolkit that actually can be effective. Um, stereotype replacement, considering situational explanations, perspective taking, and broadening your input. Something I think that's really great that I've I've heard you talk about as well is you encourage people to speak up when they do see bias occurring. And to me, this is really important. Um, and it's something that I try to emphasize. The idea that there is no such thing as passive allyship. Um, and, you know, Dr. Tiffany Jana, who's author of um, the book Subtle Acts of Exclusion, talks a lot about this as well. That when you see bias occurring and you do nothing, you know, you're not being neutral. There is no neutral at that point. You're actually complicit. Um, but at the same time, I also think that, you know, how you speak up is also important and it matters that you don't alienate people and you grandstand when you're calling them out, but you actually try to call them in, calling them into a conversation where they can understand what's happened. Can you just talk a little bit about the importance of speaking up when you witness bias occurring? First off, I really like how you characterized it all. Uh, I, I fully agree. The notion that kind of not speaking up uh, is remaining neutral is something I talk about a lot. Uh, I, I talk about how how biases have inertia. Um, so the the stuff we've been talking about today, the three to one ratio with confirmation bias, the untested assumptions, those are things that if you don't do anything else, the the flow of things is going to be to make the biases stronger and stronger over time. Um, so within your own mind, so that kind of cognitive inertia. 
Uh, and then out in the world, uh, there's cultural inertia. These biases are kind of built into our social systems, our media, and so on. And if we don't actively work against them, their default state is going to be to persist and, and to be perpetuated. And so it, it takes uh, standing up, speaking up, and, and working on these issues actively to combat that inertia that otherwise is just going to continue the biases in perpetuity. Um, and so your notion of, of calling people in, uh, I, I really like that. We we often talk about having a, a kind of a tone of, of our goal being to work together. That uh, like you and I discussed earlier in this session, you know, bias is something we all are vulnerable to. It doesn't matter uh, what our racial background is, what our sexual orientation is. If we've been in a culture that has these things in it, we've absorbed these bias habits. And so when speaking up about bias, having that approach of like, look, we all slip up from time to time. We all might say or do something that doesn't necessarily reflect our best selves. Uh, and here's something that uh, maybe you could work on if you're if you're talking kind of one on one with someone asking, uh, trying to address bias. Mm. Research shows that that makes it uh, more effective. Before we wrap up, can you just speak a little bit about what you've actually witnessed in terms of uh, outcomes with this bias intervention strategy, the actual attitude and behavior change that you've seen in people? Well, so so uh, as we were saying at the outset, uh, the a huge thing that makes our training different from others that are out there is that from the beginning, it was a, a scientific endeavor. We, we developed the initial version of the training and we put it through large scale randomized controlled experiments. So the same kind of tests that we put major medical interventions through, because that's the only way to really be able to say that going through this experience causes meaningful outcomes. And then we, we follow people for... Uh, sometimes years after they either go through our training or they get randomized into a control group. Uh, some of the biggest initial findings, you mentioned the Harvard IAT uh, website earlier. Uh, that was one of the first measures that we were looking at, that kind of measured level of automatic implicit bias. Uh, and in several of our studies, uh, we were able to show that people start doing these retrain reactions tools. They start working on retraining their automatic cognitions, and it results in lower scores on that IAT, less biased scores on the IAT, uh, lasting for at least months after uh, they've gone through the training. Uh, and our, our body of work is the only uh, method that's been shown to be able to do that uh, at most other methods of trying to affect those kinds of automatic cognitions uh, in, in the realm of bias uh, at most has been able to affect something like 24 hours later. Uh, and we were able to show reductions out to two months later in people who got our training. Um, but a, a little more concretely, uh, so uh, we see that people speak up more. Um, so, so that tool that we were talking about, that speaking up is important and we kind of give people guidelines on how to speak up effectively. We see that they're much more likely to uh, speak up when they see bias in the world around them and have conversations uh, about bias. Uh, and uh, my, my colleague, Patrick Forscher, um, a few years ago had this uh, really uh, amazing finding uh, where people who don't go through our training um, 
if they work closely with someone who does go through our training, we start to see changes in their behavior. So even though they didn't themselves get the training, they start following the example of someone who went through our training. And that's something I, I talk about when I give the training, that when you speak up about things yourself, when you start addressing things, it affects the people around you. Other people will start following your example because you figured out a better way to do something and other people will, will follow suit. Um, and, and that's been really encouraging. Dr. William Cox is the founder and CEO of Inequity Agents of Change, a 501c3 nonprofit organization devoted to disseminating evidence-based approaches to reduce bias, create inclusion, and promote equity. Will, thank you for the work that you do and for joining us today on the DEI podcast. The DEI podcast at Notre Dame Law School is produced by Notre Dame Studios. Every episode, we sit down with important voices in law, culture, society, and business to talk about issues that touch all of us. If you liked what you heard today, become a subscriber and get notified every time we upload an episode. And tune in next time for another great conversation on issues that touch us all. Until then, take care.